Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by Paul Hayward, the author and columnist. I've also been to see David Moyes to gauge the value of his managerial experience. But first, Manchester City's renewed challenge for another Premier League title. City returned to the top of the table by winning at Arsenal and, with the Champions League on the horizon, Momentum is building. Johnny, there was something ominous about the nature of that win at the Emirates, wasn't there? I think there was. It was the performance of a, a team that knows how to win titles. It was the performance of a team that, in the image of their manager, doesn't give up anything at all and, and, and is taking the attitude that if someone is going to wrest supremacy off them, they're going to have to sort of wrest it out of their they're called dead hands, as it were, because they're going to fight every every inch. And you saw Arsenal, I felt, in the first half, give their best. That's another ominous thing. You know, Arsenal were intense. They, they, they discomforted City. They threw a lot at them. They couldn't score. And then you saw Guardiola rejig things a little bit. City coming on stronger, finishing the game very strongly. And just little tells like... Arsenal bring on Fabio Vieira, who's a kind of hopeful signing for them. City bring on Phil Foden, you know, generational English talent, as it were. They've still got Julian Alvarez on the bench, a World Cup winner. John Stones is injured. And we've seen Arsenal wobble in the last couple of weeks. and We've seen City come on strong. We're used to City doing this in the second half of seasons. I know the points tallies are, are, are level, but Arsenal have got the game in hand but I'd suggest that City are a slight favourites now for the title because we've known all along that if City could click into that Manchester City machine that we're familiar with, then they would take some stopping no matter what Arsenal's lead was. And, and the signs are that that's starting to happen. Hmm. What are the implications or the broader implications, Paul, of that clicking into gear? When we look at the competitiveness of the Premier League, which actually... You know, should underpin any competitive process. You've got City, as I say, marginal favourites to be kind to win their fifth title in six years. Again, what are the implications of that? 
Well, you use the word ominous, Mike. It's ominous for anyone who wanted to see the title race uh, democratised, and it seemed to have been when you know Arsenal took this impressive lead. Liverpool have fallen away. Man City looked to be levelling off. And the, the, these two teams have, have maintained a duopoly over the last, what, six or seven seasons. So there was a freshening up of the title race, I think, in the first half of the season. But now we're starting to look at a, a more familiar picture it was remarkable the way Man City just switched back on against Aston Villa. They toyed with Aston Villa at the weekend and then they were ruthless against Arsenal in exploiting the defensive mistakes, particularly by Tommy Asu and, and Gabriel. So it really felt like the old order had restored itself. I mean, it's a bit early to reach that conclusion because Arsenal have got a terrific mindset. They look a bit raw and inexperienced at that level, but you know they might fight back. We mustn't discount them altogether. But yes, it looks as if Man City have woken up to a threat and reimpose themselves. And of course, it's an interesting scenario as well, because we've got these 115 charges hanging over Man City. So there's an extra moral dimension to it now. You know, we're used to the idea that Abu Dhabi's money and Pep Guardiola's brilliance and the talent of all these players would dominate the title race. But we've also got this, now we've got this extra kind of reservation about it on top of the general, you know, feeling of over-familiarity with it. Yeah, well, it doesn't help the situation when you've got banners, 100-foot-long banners, proclaiming the genius of um, City's principal lawyer, does it? If we're talking about football as a one-party state, Johnny, what about the benevolent dictator, uh, Mr Guardiola? I'm getting the sense that this is now personal, it's not business. That You mean in reference to the attacks, as he would say, on City? Uh, that and you know the, the fact that obviously there's an obsessional side to his character which is coming out. Yeah, there is. And and I felt actually my, my colleague Martin Samuel made a, a good point in, in, in print today, which is that it's not just money and, and might that, that is um, behind Manchester City, but of course there's an utter genius of a manager. And I guess the, the, the question would be, what would this look like if Pep Guardiola was removed from the equation? That's what we don't quite know. Would City, would Abu Dhabi dominance through those riches, would, would it actually be expressed in quite such a decisive way without, I think, the best manager around? I, I'd suggest probably not, but we, we are seeing Pep coming back, fighting as he does. He's a supreme competitor as much as being a, a, a great intellect in, in, in football terms, I think. He made bold Pep-like calls in that game last night, putting in Bernardo Silva in a kind of... I'm not sure if he was a left back. I'm not sure if he was a left wing back. It was just a, it was it was a kind of classic, go everywhere and follow these tactical details, but don't actually worry about you know sort of positional conventions. And it worked to treat you know curbing Saka and then adding so much to the attack as well. And then off the pitch, he's choosing the the, the Fergie route, I suppose, which is marshalling the fan base circling the wagons, throw, throw a few more little cliches in there, but that, that thing where he's decided to draw energy from this, he's decided to portray Manchester City as underdogs, which is some intellectual leap, but but he manages it. And he's galvanising people, which is which is what he does. And, you know, in those terms, whether you agree with him or disagree with him on, on the his attitude towards City being charged by the Premier League, if you remove that and just look at it in management terms and 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 those it, it it's it's a tour de force yeah certainly you know when i saw him a couple of weeks ago i got a real sense that he was 
he's ready to pull as many rabbits as he needed out of the hat. And, you know, I'm grateful for you to try and describe Bernardo Silva's position. It was almost like a sort of a, you know, an inverted left back who then became a sort of boxy midfield. It, it was just great to behold. And I suppose, Paul, that brings us to the, you know, one of our classic tropes, which is Guardiola being so determined to win the Champions League, he overthinks everything. Next week, they're uh, in Leipzig to play you know, Red Bull Leipzig. What's he going to come up with now? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I, I love watching him. You know, in, in games, in, in little moments, he goes into these wild gesticulation modes where he drags a couple of players over to the touchline and he's, he's you know, he's, he's flashing his hands around and pointing and jabbing his fingers and giving them positional instructions that to most of us are just incomprehensible but I mean the players nod and job back on and, and do the job I mean it, it's a kind of we know it's a kaleidoscopic system in the sense that every player on that pitch is multi-talented and they are flexible and adaptable so he has that in his favor it's, it's not as if he's he's turning average players into into you know total footballers but at the same time, he, he his little dash of genius will make the difference most of the time. Sometimes it undermines him, as we've seen in some of the big Champions League knockout stages. But he must be looking at the Champions League now and thinking that, we say this every year, don't we? The they'll, City will never have a better chance of winning the Champions League than this year. But I was looking at the odds, Mike, and and would you believe that Liverpool and Real Madrid are both 10 to 1 to win the Champions League? The two <laughs> dominant teams in the market are Manchester City and, and Bayern Munich. So if the bookmakers know anything and the data crunchers know anything, they're saying that if Man City perform at the level they have in the last two games, for example, you know, Bayern Munich will be their their biggest opponents in this, this year's competition. So, so at City, they must be feeling the sap rising again and thinking, you know, this could be the year when we finally become European champions. Mm, yeah, as you mentioned there, Paul, Liverpool actually face Real Madrid at Anfield next week in a repeat of last year's final. Now, a lot's changed in the last nine months or so. Obviously, they're clubs with huge European pedigree, but considerable current problems. Johnny, do, do Liverpool in particular need a game like this and an occasion like this to actually reset their season? Yeah, I, I, th- I think they, they do need this game to be to be big. They might have already had that reset though in the Mersey Derby. I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see how they perform at Newcastle at the weekend because in that Mersey Derby for the first time in a long time that golden Liverpool word intensity was back and I guess I think unity from fans to players was back. There was just an extra edge to everything they, they did that had been lacking and a renewed sort of sense of purpose I think about Klopp and his communications around the game and I I delved into this in an article and and the soundings I have taken suggest that Klopp has kind of reached his kind of rock bottom of this season and he's come back over and he's, he he is re-energized and he is ready to like Pep fight for for everything he's built in the in the second half of the season and has renewed belief that Liverpool can transition successfully because that's what they're doing they're trying to transition to a new team you know, he's more confident than that. I think he feels he can bring in reinforcements in the summer and all the rest of it. So I kind of feel that that maybe the curve is starting to come up for Liverpool. But one of the factors I think they've battled this season is going into it, having come so close to that quadruple, coming so close to another title, beaten by City in the final few minutes of last season, and then starting the season badly, 
I think two wins in the first seven games and realizing their title hopes were over by, you know, middle of September. And as someone close to the situation said, it, it was like letting the air of that out of the balloon for those players. Asking Liverpool players to go and fight for fourth place isn't going to get their juices going. The Champions League will get their juices going. Now, if they can conjure a great Anfield night against Real Madrid on top of an upturn in the league, then suddenly the rest of the season looks completely different. They've got another Champions League to go for and they they, they can go and, you know, push up back up into the upper reaches of the Premier League. But going out of the Champions League, I think, would kill their season and it, it might put them back psychologically to the, the state they've been in. When you think about it, Klopp's leadership qualities have, have come through, certainly in response to that report, highlighting UEFA's role in you know, what was termed dangerous chaos at the last final in Paris. You know, he was speaking of lies in connection to that, Paul. If you're going to make that connection with your fans, you can't do it in a more evocative way, can you? No, I, I would have expected Jurgen Klopp to, to see it that way. I think anybody would. It was the treatment of Liverpool fans at that game was outrageous. In fact, all fans, all spectators at that game was outrageous. And it really focused attention on how the live spectator has just been treated, turned into an extra by the governing bodies, you know, just a just a horde of people that can be treated any way you want to treat them because they're just noise in the background for TV and streaming companies. And and it was a real watershed, I think, that Champions League final, or I hope it was. And I don't think it will make any difference to Liverpool's season or, or how they play, but Jurgen Klopp is always, always an articulate analyst of those sorts of off-the-pitch issues, and that's one of the many reasons Liverpool are lucky to have him. I think on the pitch, I'd, I'd like to see a bit more evidence that they've turned this corner because when I watched them against Wolves and against Brighton recently, they a lot of the players looked detached to me, looked like, they've lost in, like they'd lost interest, they weren't doing their jobs, they weren't doing the basics, and it was quite shocking to see Liverpool players so almost with a white flag up. And I think if a Merseyside derby doesn't get you going again, nothing will. So I'd like to see them sustain that form over a longer period before I'm convinced that actually Liverpool have, have, have re-engaged. But the, the signs, as Johnny said, were certainly promising. Hmm. Johnny, what do you make of Madrid? More Champions League titles than La Liga titles in the last decade, which is some stat to get your head around. You know, there's a familiar cycle of recrimination going on there, isn't there? Trailing Barcelona by eight points, even after a comfortable win on Wednesday night. Ancelotti under pressure, despite his achievements, including that latest empty World Club Cup win. Madrid, you can never write them off, but, and there is a but, but this time, isn't there? I think I think there is. I mean... Look, Ancelotti's been here before. He's won Champions Leagues and then been sacked the following season before. Let's face it, this is the Madrid cycle, as you, as you mentioned, Mike. And, and rather like the old firm in Scotland, Madrid and Barcelona live in each other's kind of, in, in a sort of symbiotic relationship or whatever, it's probably the wrong word. But they, they you know, they live in, in comparison to each other perpetually. And partly Ancelotti's problem is that Barcelona are having such a great season, such a regenerative season, under Xavi, but on the pitch there've been wobbles in form. There've been some some limp defeats. They haven't really contested the title race properly. The what was always going to happen 
is happening, which is the end of 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 a certain generation. Modric is is not playing such a big part. Casemiro's already gone. Cruz as well. So that's that's that was always the issue that was gonna really bite them. Benzema scored a couple on Wednesday, and and you know he he's had injury problems, but he he may still have one great sort of finale to the campaign in him. But they're not the Madrid of last season. Caveat, of course, is that last season we saw them coming out of a slump early in the year to somehow somehow win, you know, three ties on the bounce against. Premier League teams who you you thought would beat anyone in front of them the way they were playing any European team, but but Madrid found ways to to do it. So of course we can't write them off, but I don't think they're quite what they were in winning it last year. Mm. I mentioned the uh, uh, the World Club Cup. Paul is going to have twenty four teams in twenty twenty five. This year's version is going to be in Saudi Arabia. Surprise, surprise. Speaking of which, Newcastle, that game against Liverpool at the weekend, is that a potential top four decider? Yeah, it could be. I think what we're seeing with Newcastle is that they've overachieved and the depth of their squad isn't big enough to sustain really a top four challenge. They might finish in the top four places, but they're starting to struggle. Three draws in a row against Crystal Palace, West Ham and Bournemouth. The the form has dipped a bit. Liverpool's form is improving. You know, the the, the the sensible way to look at that game, I suppose, would be to expect a, a Liverpool win unless unless Newcastle can kind of restore their momentum, the, the excellent momentum that Eddie Howe's built up. I mean, on your point about Saudi Arabia, Mike, I, I'm almost looking at these events now and wondering whether FIFA are, are actually taking decisions that favour Saudi Arabia rather than the other way around. It's not an accident. There's a pattern here. The Saudi State Tourism Authority is sponsoring the 2023 Women's World Cup. The men's tournament is expected to go there in 2030. And as you said, Club World Cup is a 2014 Club World Cup is is probably going to be in Saudi Arabia. So there's, there is an incredible pattern at the heart of FIFA, which they probably hope we're not noticing, but we are. And their team, Newcastle United, are even dressing as Saudi Arabia in their in their mm-hmm. away kit. <laughs> uh, p- people have become inured to that now but I watched them the other night away from home and I thought that they just looked like Saudi Arabia and it's amazing how quickly that becomes the norm how things that were once shocking become we become accustomed to I mean I was going to say we all need to remain vigilant but that's all that's weasel words in a way because you need to be more than vigilant don't you yeah Chelsea completely different model Johnny one win in nine not scored in Eight out of 13. They dominate, but they don't penetrate. When will patience wear thin? Well, I I hope the answer to that question is, is a long time from now, because I think it'd be preposterous to commit to this project with a whole load of new players, young players, and a manager that you've come in, you've asked to come in and do something completely different, which is actually to build a sort of you know, viable and lasting, sustainable culture, and a manager that is finding his feet at a, a at a bigger stage in in Graham Potter. So I hope, I hope it's a long time, but experience tells you, and I'm not going to use the cliche. It's Chelsea, so they sack managers. Actually, it's more when owners invest lots of money in new players and the team doesn't deliver quickly. Owners tend to 
get itchy. And I hope that's not what's going to happen here. That said, there are issues that I think Graham Potter needs to show his mettle by addressing. And, and you've touched on them, Mike. The, 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 the lack of penetration in goals is is damning. At Brighton, some people called him the XG King, disparagingly. And there's a danger that Chelsea are going down a similar route. The alarm bells for me would be Mudrik hasn't yet looked like he's a... Uh, they have a role for him. He's a £90 million player. He's a transformative player. He doesn't quite look like that yet. And, you know, I watched the Manchester City Arsenal game and then flipped over to Chelsea and I had to kind of, I was blink, blinking yeah. looking, oh, there's, there's Ruben Loftus-Cheek, there's Hakim Ziyech. You know, it was like looking at Chelsea before all the spending and I was thinking, where are all the new players? So there are questions that it's really difficult for Potter, but I think he needs to quickly decide a best 11 and a best route to go. Yeah, you mentioned ownership and the, you know, associated egocentricity of that role. Todd Bowley was spotted uh, in Paris watching PSG, inevitably perhaps linked then with Neymar. Now, Paul, that's just absurd to even contemplate someone who essentially is recreating walking football in the Champions League. (laughs) Yeah, it would be an entirely superficial thing to do, wouldn't it? A thing based entirely on commerce, because... It's probably likely then. Isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I've, I've just made it happen. Um, if um, if Graham Potter has twenty five players and an incredibly difficult job in trying to work out what his best eleven is and where they should all play, the last thing he needs is Neymar walking into the middle of that and saying everything revolves around me. You know, this is all about me. I mean, you could talk about destabilization of Chelsea. Well, that's already happening with the scattergun transfer policy but to make a, a a shallow you know move of that nature would would be would just finish it off really and i and i i'm not convinced they're going to try and do it and if they do well they'll get what they deserve mm. well chelsea are at home to southampton on on saturday johnny so i suppose they can look at them and think well things could be worse <laughs> <laughs> oh wow i know we're having a, a right season for uh for soap operas at football clubs in southampton a prime example i mean the brief and strange reign of Nathan Jones is is now over. Southampton are now in Leeds territory in more than one way because they their new manager search has has, has quickly run into to farce and they're they're relying on a, a an assistant. So then of course you think, well, what, why have you sacked a manager without any idea what you were going to do next? But clubs do this time and time again. What I feel sorry for with Southampton, I saw them at the start of the season, and they have signed some really really good young footballers. You know, Bella Kotchap, for example, the forwards, really good players, Bazunu in goal. You know, they, they've got, they've collected some talent there and you thought there was an opportunity to grow a really good team. And it looks rather like that the, the kind of survival battle is is going to kind of rip up that project a little bit before it even got going. And I feel sorry for those young players because it must be must be really difficult for them. But I have to say the the last couple of weeks' events give you even less confidence as that they're going to stay up. Mm. Just a final look at some of the European issues, Paul. Spurs lost in Milan. Antonio Conte, do you get any sense that we're approaching the end game with him? I do, really. I, I, I mean, Spurs fans have been grumpy for various reasons for many years, possibly decades, but they're 
they're very grumpy about Conte. And there is this idea taking hold that Conte is somehow dated and that the one big idea he has doesn't work anymore in the Premier League, that the Premier League is is, is different and, and that he's playing his own game and it's not an effective game given the nature of the, you know, the talents of the opposition. And I, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, you don't You don't watch Spurs and think that's a good idea. You know, they have plenty of good players and but no idea with what to do to them, with them in a tactical or strategic sense. So once that idea takes hold, I think, you know, you'll you'll both sides will recognize it, I think, at some point, and Conte will feel that he wants to go back to Italy and Spurs will feel that they're they're stuck and they can't make the next move until they bring somebody in who's more attuned to how the Premier League is these days. Mm. So Johnny, a semi-detached manager of a flawed team, is that an approximation of the truth or is that too unkind it's looked like that at times no it, it's probably it's probably not unkind and and if that's unkind on Conte then he's he's kind of made that impression himself by the noises the the, the continual sort of things aren't quite what I want to hear noises and that that that, that can't have helped the Harry Kane situation in some ways doesn't help I don't blame Harry Kane for that but the club's got itself into a position where the talisman future yet again isn't isn't really decided and then the thing you've touched on just that tension between Conte's ideas and the traditions if you want to call it that way or the aspirations might be a better word of Spurs supporters for the kind of football they they want to play so that unity fans board players manager doesn't seem to be there at the moment Mm. and it wouldn't be modern football Paul would it without a heavily trialed supposed three bid in, in excess of three billion from an Iranian American financier. As I said, heavily trailed, but no contact yet. You know, there's, there's the noise is coming out of Spurs is that there's no desire to actually sell the club. As I said, that's modern football writ large yet again. Yes, uh, you have to work on the assumption that every Premier League club is basically for sale because all the owners have decided the ceiling hasn't yet been reached. And they all think they can um, squeeze more juice out of it. I'd be interested to ask you two. When Spurs, when Enoch took Spurs over uh, many, many years ago now, nobody thought that they were going to be in it for the long haul. They've been in it longer than anyone thought they would be. But you always felt that Spurs would be uh, for sale at some point. That this was a this was a quick turnover operation. You know, maybe it's just taken longer than we thought. But. Uh, the stadium is a big issue, isn't it? Because, you know, having built that stadium, you'd want a heck of a lot of money to compensate you for all the hassle that that caused and all the investment you put in. So it would be a, it would be a high price. But again, I start from the position that they're all for sale. Yeah, well, to, to answer your, your point there, Paul, someone told me recently, you know, someone who's, who's had personal experience of the, the, the American entrepreneurs coming in, especially, where, you know, essentially it's a three-pronged, 10-year project you've got the initial real estate value and and potential there you've got the commercial potential and then some way third you've got the sporting dimension to it so you know we're looking at big business principles coming into football which frankly is no great surprise to any of us is it no completely um that's that's the analysis they're all making i'm sure yeah. Spurs, of course, are at home to West Ham on Sunday. It will be David Moyes' 644th Premier League game as a manager. Only Arsene Wenger and Sir Alex Ferguson have been in charge of more. 
Now, he's not a man for such statistics, but whatever your allegiance, you must admit that they represent a great body of work. Welcome, David. When Jurgen Klopp came on the podcast, I asked him what was the greatest lesson that he could impart from his 1,000 games to a, a manager starting off on game one. Now, it's 25 years since you began mm -hmm. at, at Preston. What would you say to the same question? What, what answer would you give? I don't think I could turn around and give you one answer. But probably the one I need to do is you need to try and be successful in your first job if you can because that would give you the chance to get towards a thousand. If you're probably not successful in your first job, it becomes much harder. But as well as that, I think if you don't love the game, then I think that you'll probably never get to a thousand games. You have to have an incredible love for the game that it drives you on because behind the scenes for all the managers and for all the... It's a long, hard road. You're losing a lot of family time. So, for me, winning if you get a first job would be how you, how you win. Does it matter? Maybe. Not as much as getting the wins, but I think if you don't love the game, then you'll never go on to get a thousand. The fallout, a fallout rate from the first job is frightening. It's over 50%. Yeah. Percent, yeah. That? And that's why, you know, somehow or other, you know, you have to find a way of getting yourself your foot in the ladder. And, and what you don't, shouldn't do is think that you put your sort of feet under the table and that's you, you've got the job and you, you don't need to work anymore. Actually, the minute you get the job is how you find you know, more information, where you go for good advice, where you go. And, and there's so many things nowadays where you can do it. But I remember you know, the early years when I was a manager at Preston North End, when I got my first job, I was out looking to see. I was, I was, I'd done all my coaching badges, but I was out everywhere trying to find where I could get more information, going to try and watch teams training as a younger Coach, I was trying to go and watch the national team, see if I could get in, see what it was like, just to pick up ideas. And uh, I think that's what I mean. I think when you you get in the job, if you think, hey, I've done this, that's great, I've got a job now, I think that's where you'll be kidding yourself on if you don't think this is really just where the hard work begins. Mm. How do you think the game's changed, or the job has changed specifically over the last 25 years? Uh, look, the job the job has definitely changed. I think the way you communicate now is probably one of the biggest things I find. You know, even, for example, we were discussing this, you know, how I communicate as a manager to you or how I communicate to the media. But more importantly, how you communicate to your players nowadays, I think is a big part of communication. If I go back to the days when you know, I was a player or maybe in the early days, you know, you used to try and stay away from the manager's office. You didn't get near his door. You tried to, you'd, you know, you'd nod your head maybe but it maybe wasn't quite as good a, a sort of communication as what it is nowadays. And I think that uh, there's lots of other parts of the game, you know, we've got all the players, I've got a team around them, you know, there's, there's much more, you know, some of them have podcasts as well, you know, some of them are doing other, other things in their life as well. So I think the job's become much harder. Their agent's involvement obviously has, has changed a lot of ways how you know how you would want to do your business correctly because it makes it much harder when the agents out there touting your players to, to go to, to other clubs. Mm, because the financial incentives are so huge now. You know, you get examples. I was someone just talking to me recently about Vinicius Junior at Real Madrid where, you know, he has two childhood friends with him. 
live-in chef, live-in sports scientist, who basically the scientist operates off the data that the club give them on a particular day. Yeah. So in other words, there's a performance cell, mm -hmm. if you like, yeah. built around one player. Yeah. Is that the way it's going, do you think? Uh, yes. Yeah, I would say. I hope it wasn't. You know, they've all probably got, they all want to go back to their own countries for maybe operations or medical treatment, even though the club supply, all the clubs supply terrific medical professionals. But it's often, quite often, that they, they choose that they've got somewhere else where they think they can be treated quicker, better, or better advice maybe at times. So I do think that they're all getting getting to that. I hope it doesn't go as far as what you sort of mean, that, because it would take everything away, you know. You know, I'm, I'm hearing some people having you know, their own fitness coaches and different things, I'm saying, well, I can see maybe in the off-season why you would have that, but you, know, you wouldn't have it during the season when obviously we are preparing the players and getting them ready for games, etc, etc. With the, you, know, you mentioned the players, now obviously you've got the, the challenge of dealing with them, you know, managing millennials as well, different breed of, of individual. There's also been a lot of talk about player, almost player burnout, and you know, the emotional vulnerability of the modern player. As a manager, do you have to have almost the strong moral compass and also a real degree of sort of like emotional intelligence, for one of a better phrase. I think, they, I think you need all of them. I think the players nowadays are changed. I think being a manager, you need to evolve them. I think the values, you need to show the values to the players. They want to see your values as a man, as a coach, you know, as a leader. All those things come into it. So I think to go into coaching, I think you, you start, you get your coaching badges. I think having leadership qualities, you know, motivational qualities, emotional qualities with players. You know, there's some of the coaches are terrific dealing individually with players. There'll be others who are maybe not so good. So I think that all those points are, are valid in going on to become a, a successful coach or manager. But even them, I could say to you, you might be very good at all them, but if you don't get that winning formula to win on a Saturday, then none of them might work. Okay, going back to something you said earlier about as a young coach, that thirst for knowledge. You, know, you quite famously you know, compiled notes on the tactics and the techniques of managers that you'd seen or yeah. coaches that you'd seen. Out of all the coaches that you did observe, who had the greatest influence on you? Oh, there's loads of coaches. I was a, a huge admirer. Obviously, I was brought up in the Scottish SFA system. I'd done the English one as well when I was younger, coach as well. But I have to say at the time, the Scottish managers, you know, were obviously Sir Alex is Evie, but Jock Steen, Sir Matt Busby, Bill Shankly, so many of the of the Scottish managers. George Graham, strange enough as well, you know, was sort of one of the modern ones. And if you look back at the Scottish managers who used to come down and you know, even people like George Burnley, Gordon Strachan, you know, who, who've all managed in the Premier League and there's many, many more. And they all came out of Largs, is it Largs? All out of Largs with, with the coaching system. But the guy who set Largs up was, uh, in my mind, in my era, was, was Andy Roxburgh. Mm. And Andy Roxburgh was probably Scotland's first really modern coach, if you wanted to put it that way, and, and he'd done a great job. And I was, I was really intrigued by how they worked. But I have to say, in those early days when I was a young boy, you know, we had you know, Walter Smith, you know, there was Jim McLean, there was Jockey Scott, there was Sir Alex, there was, there was so many of the great Scottish managers would come down and give their time up mm. for young coaches like myself or, or young players at the time. And they would give up a couple of weeks of the summertime to come down and help them prepare and help them with the management. So 
I admired so many. But I think as I sort of got to an age where I was beginning to sort of look to see what was out, I was a great lover of Terry Venables because I liked the way he managed, I liked his teams. And then obviously there was Brian Clough and, and Sir Bobby and people like that who had the legacies in England, I think, with their clubs, you know, who'd been in charge of teams for a long time. The Nottingham Forest teams that won the, the sort of the European Cups and whatnot would had great teams and they were great to watch. Yeah, it's funny enough, we had Martin O'Neill on last week. Do you think, in terms of when you're looking at football, isn't it a constant process of renewal anyway? Oh, huge. If you think that you you can stand still. I actually think that, you know, I've been out of the game a few times where you know, I've been out of work and, and I actually think that the minute you're out, you nearly lose touch. It moves on that fast. You know, the, the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, the, the, the amount of work there is, no looking at players, no analysing what's what's out there, how it goes. And, you know, for a lot of people who don't do not do football management, you know, maybe it sounds like a job, you know, that you can sort of come in and you're away every day at two o'clock. I have to say, I couldn't see where it's further from the truth from that. It really isn't. It's, a, it's absolutely 24-7 and, you know, you're nearly every day of the week now. So from my point of view, I think that... Uh, you know, if you're going into football management and you're going to be in it, it's a really, really tough job. Mm. Is this where experience comes in? Because you know, there's so much noise around the game and the, the job that you do and others do. You know, there's always this staple that, you know, there's always one manager, in inverted commas, under pressure every week, and you see the, the pantomime around that. When Brendan Rodgers was going through it, I asked him how he dealt with it, and he just said, everything becomes automated. You know, you've been there before, you just know what you're doing. In your position, has your experience enabled you to have a perspective on, you know, some of the stuff that's gone over the last six, six, six eight weeks? Uh, hugely, huge perspective, because I think to myself is, West Ham have had three brilliant seasons. We avoided relegation. We take them into Europe the next year. We get to the semi-final European competition. We finish seventh the second year. So the perspective has made me saying is, yeah, you know, if you're going to come to West Ham and expect to do six, seven years where you're competing at the top, well, I think you're probably kidding yourself on. And I think MD or any real football intelligence would probably go along with that because you just look at the look at the size at the moment, you know, look at the form of Newcastle. And other teams are in Turkey. Brighton have had an incredible run in what they've done. You know, Brentford and Fulham are doing so well this year with, the, with their... So you've got no entitlement to be there all the time. And when you are a club which you've probably never been there, well, there's a good chance that you could easily drop out of it. So we've had, we've had a couple of incredible years, which has meant I'm more relaxed. And, you know, if it didn't work here at West Ham, then fine, you know, you, you, you take it and that would be it. But the biggest thing for me at West Ham is I see it having that much potential to improve, get better and be one of the, a real major club. It is a major club, but become a real challenging club. I see it. And I think for the last couple of years, we've, we've proved that. This year, we're not doing quite so well. Mm. Because we, we are, though, in, in an age of state-sponsored football with everything that comes with that. I think that's probably only going to intensify. It's certainly the, you know, the financial, perhaps, inequalities. Mm -hmm. Given that, how does a club of West Ham's stature and tradition deal with that and make itself relevant to the future? I think as a football club, I think that's why I think there's so much room for improvement. I think we can do things better here and I think that in the future, hopefully I'll be able to help them 
or guide them and show them a way where I think we should be going forward and use my experience to help that. I mean, I think that uh, there's some clubs following some pathway, so a Brighton or a Brentford might be following a, a, a different route than maybe other clubs. But I think you're right about how does a West Ham compete now with the spending powers of maybe three or four clubs in the Premier League. We probably don't have that spending power. So what we've got to try and do then is is find a way of getting good players, identifying them early, us working them in. And you have to also have a belief that money is not always going to be the reason why you're successful in football. If you do, then I'm not saying that I wouldn't want to be involved in it if it was that, but I would want to hope that there was a chance out there for smaller teams to get better off or teams with not as much money to win it. Leicester City won the league a few years ago and we're seeing, for example, Arsenal this year not being talked about really. I don't know if there was any pundit or one pundit who named Arsenal as possible Premier League winners. So that means that the football does change and it is unpredictable. So I think we've got to hope that the clubs who are getting all the money then it doesn't always work for them. Because mm, in essence, it does come down a lot of the time to what you do on the grass out there, doesn't it? Do you see yourself as a teacher first and then maybe some form of senior executive second? Mm -hmm. I think you're all that. I think now when I get age, I mean, I, I hope that when I'm, I'd love to be probably a coach educator when I finish. You know, if I finish being a manager, I'd love to be involved in coaching because it's what I like doing, I like listening to it. I love talking to football people about things that are going on. But are you a teacher? Yeah, I think you're a teacher. And a lot of things now is being the manager, is being a teacher in modern life. You know, there's a lot of the, lot of different situations behind the scenes which go on. There's a lot of mental health issues, which mean that suddenly you have to be totally educated in how you how you speak and how you deal with people who've got some some other problems. So being that manager, being that coach, comes with lots of different diverse jobs. Mm. And you said earlier on as a final question. You have to love the game. What gets you up in the morning? Uh, always getting me up was the thought of going training and having the training ready for the players and trying to put on the best sessions and the best preparation I possibly could. Being prepared. Also to make it enjoyable, but more importantly to make sure that I feel as if that I came off smiling myself as a coach because I thought I got something out of that I needed to get in today. I got an element of... of today's practice gave me something which will help me towards a result or help me towards something in the Saturday. So that's probably the thing that pushes me on. And look, I've got to say, loving the game means that you got, imagine coming in and training with some of the best football players. I've got some incredible footballers, England internationals, Brazilian internationals, Italian internationals, and getting the chance to work with them. Hey, have fun with them as well. But after all this time, do you still get a wow moment when you see, I don't know, someone take the ball down in a certain way or whatever? Yeah, I still certainly do. But my biggest wow moment was Wayne Rooney when I was 16 year old. And I'm only saying it because I still talk about it, Wayne scoring in training and us all looking round at each other saying, <laughs> did he really do that? You know what I mean? When, we, when he's only 16. So, you know, you've had those wow moments. But I think now I'm looking for, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to get success. I'm still driven by the best is still to come. I've still got room for a trophy in my house somewhere, if you know what I mean. I've still got room to, to try and get another few games in if it's possible. So I'm driven by that to keep that going and in the hope that somewhere we come out on top of it. All the best to you, David. Thanks Thank, for you. Thank you. Thank Cheers. you.
So, Johnny, you know him very well. Now, I was struck by how at ease he felt, despite the recent problems. Is this a case of vast experience giving him really clear perspective? I think it is, Mike, that that, that came through. I really enjoyed listening to David sounding so much uh, yeah, at ease as, uh, as himself there. And that's been my experience of, of, of conversations with him in recent years that uh, he's in a really so happy place, I think, in his managerial career, having had the, the the big knock of the Manchester United experience, which would knock anybody. But I think his, his juices came back a long time ago and feeling that he's found something in West Ham that he can affect positively, finding new adventures with them, building something there has really been a joy to David. And, and one of the things that really struck me in, in your interview was him talking about when you asked, you know, advice for young managers or, or how do you sort of construct a managerial career? And he said, you have to love it. You have to love it. That's the key thing. And his love for the game has been well-documented there from the start, famously the guy that as a player would, would, would drive up and down the country trying to go to evening games preparing for a managerial career he's always had a ferocious work ethic but I think as in as an older manager he's managed to balance that a little bit more with having a proper life with perspective understanding that that football's fickle but you can affect the people around you and the teams you manage in a positive way and you you focus on that that you know he's he's quite sanguine. I think about the the ownership at West Ham. He's he, he's quite grateful to them. Now that's not what one might expect from the outside. You know the, the, those owners don't have the best reputation. But David understands this is football, and they've actually backed him in difficult times. And if the results aren't there, then he might things might change. But he, he's been through the you know he's been through the mill now. He knows all that, and I think perspective, but retaining the love is 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 put him in that the the, the state that that you drew out of him in that interview. Yeah, what I found fascinating, Paul, was when he talked about you know, maybe once management is over, becoming a, a coach educator. And the thing that went through my mind was that, you know, I was wondering, especially the, with the way that West Ham's going to evolve, whether or not he would end up almost as a sort of a technical director at a club like that. Where do you think his future lies? And do you think, you know, I mentioned, you know, the, you know, the great names, Wenger and Ferguson, is he actually underestimated as a manager? Uh, yeah, I think he was very shrewd in that interview with you, Mike, to to spell out the good times that West Ham have had recently. And he isolated this season as a as a sort of bit of a regression. But, he, he you know, he, he set out the progress he's made there very well. I mean, as for educating, you know, there's a there's a fetishization in modern football of of data, of analysis, of specialist coaching. And sometimes all that obscures the the kind of universal human elements, the, the human values that you have to have, I think, to be a good manager or a coach. And and David Moyes is a kind of is a bridge back to some methods and, and philosophies that are that are sometimes not laughed at, but dismissed as antiquated. But you know, he his his vast knowledge of the game from the bottom to the top. And his experience of working with countless people, <clears throat> players and coaches and, and and professionals within the game has to have a use. It has to have merit. Because if you 
if you discard people with knowledge and experience, you know, you 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 end up just putting yourself in the hands of, as I say, the the analysts and the and the data specialists and and the people who think that football is all about you know numbers and statistics. So. I suppose what I'm saying is that David Moyes has a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience and people like him should have a, a, a role in the game when they're no longer just managing first 11s. Mm. He's very realistic, Johnny, about West Ham's place in the food chain, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Um, you know, he, he, you don't manage the third most games in the Premier League without knowing what the food chain looks like. And... I'd suggest that he's he's brought West Ham not this year but last year to more or less the the top of where they could you know get because of that place in the food chain. But I think that's part of management as well, which is having ambition but understanding what's possible and then going for that and and being realistic. And one thing you'll always find from David is is utter realism, and I think that actually comes out of the experience that that, that Paul was talking about there. And out of the traditions he comes from, the football background education system at Largs in Scotland, the the figures he's learnt from, like Walter Smith and Sir Alex Ferguson and and Andy Roxburgh, who he mentions, there's a sort of Scottish common sense that has passed down into coaching, and allied with ambition and fight, has made Scots successful managers over the years. But you know, maybe David's one of the last ones, sadly, um, at the top level that we've we've, we've produced. Yeah, well, finally, and with due apologies for raising this grotesque subject yet again, I suppose by common consensus, Paul, West Ham got away with one with the AR when uh, Suchek sort of trialled as a a replacement goalkeeper against Chelsea. The AR, that was part of probably the worst weekend for the, you know, that benighted system last weekend it's really wobbling isn't it and let's discuss if we could whether this system is actually worth retaining well good question over the past three weeks we've seen four sort of calamitous errors across different parts of the game so you had Fabinho going through the back of Evan Ferguson at uh, Brighton 18 year old lad left the ground in a, a brace and Fabinho wasn't sent off. That's a VAR blunder. Then you have uh, Suchek playing goalkeeper on the floor for West Ham and not being penalised for it. And then most contentiously possibly, you've got, you've got the offside line being drawn in the wrong place twice. So you've got four major issues there. You've got tackling, uh, you've got handball and you've got offsides with VAR failing in all four cases. And Howard Webb was sort of commendably honest and open about that and called them in, called the referees in to to try and say, you know, this isn't good enough, we need to be better. But he raised a spectre when he said that, that when he talked about human error, because human error and VAR are an oxymoron. Uh, VAR was supposed to eliminate human error, not add to human error. So Howard Webb there, I think, opened the door to people saying, well, if VAR still has human errors, bad human errors built into it, then maybe VAR is the problem. Do you see what I mean? He's sort of let a bit too much light in on magic there. And this is where the debate has gone now, where people are saying, well, okay, if, if it can't be run properly, it shouldn't be run at all. I, I don't subscribe to that. I just think it's, I think it's, um, I think it works better in Europe. I think there's a problem with the people running it in this country. 
And I think that it's far exceeded its brief, which is something we've said very often on this podcast and in other places. It's it's, it's out of control. It's not just dealing uh, with the obvious, clear and obvious errors in the game. And it's turned offside, particularly into a, into a, a forensics exercise where uh, every time there's a goal, uh, you just you just sit and wait for the inquest. And that is a, a, a fundamental diminution of the enjoyment of watching live football. So I can't believe that anybody would think that it's that it's working properly or acceptable in its present form. Yeah. And have we been missing a point, Johnny, that being VAR is a distinctive skill? And it's a skill set that the the old guard who basically are shuffled off to Stockley Park to do their Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon duty don't understand fully. We almost need a culture shift in refereeing and a new breed of referee who actually operates in isolation from the game almost. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And and it struck me as odd right from the start that, that referees who aren't able to referee anymore, you, you shove them into Stockley Park. What? Why? You know, sure, surely that's it's not a retirement job. It's it's as important as anything else in this day and age. So, absolutely, we'll probably need referees who are specifically trained in VAR. I mean, my starting point would be: I don't think we're better for having VAR. I wish it had never come in, but it is here now. So I think we've got to deal with that reality, and it needs to be streamlined. As Paul said, it, sh- it in human error shouldn't <laughs> coexist. So I think the streamlining needs to be have VAR for completely binary decisions, which would be, you know, handballs, goals, and, and, and on offsides. But there also needs to be a redrawing of the laws, I think, because one of the problems that VAR has struck is it's 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 coming at a time when there's been a lot of tinkering with particularly the handball law and particularly the offside law. And what we saw at Arsenal, which was a game I was at, was really, a fa- it wasn't the technology, it was a failure to interpret the laws properly which is alarming, let's face it, very alarming, and that's a human error on, on a big scale. But if the sympathy for the refs, it's 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 trying to marry these two things together. So I think offside needs to be really simplified, and I think we need to have clarity on, on handball. And I, w- I wouldn't have VAR for the other stuff. It's always struck me that the referee on the pitch is the best person to decide whether a foul is reckless or not, because what TV doesn't show you or things like impact and, and context, not properly. So let the, I'm, ha- I'm very comfortable, and I think that aspect's been better this season, actually. We've seen fewer pernickety pulling back fouls because TV seems to make the foul look worse than it actually was. That's fine, but I wouldn't I wouldn't get VR involved in that at all. Offsides and, and handballs, but the, the laws need to, to be simplified as well. Yeah, well, let's be clear. VAR has changed the very nature of the game. Its flow's interrupted, its joy is denied. The basic attraction of celebrating a goal has been reduced to an afterthought or a temporary indulgence. Now, I admire Howard Webb and his transparent approach, but look at the organisation that he represents. Like FIFA, it's introspective and has little apparent appetite for dealing with mistakes. It seems happy to defend the damage that VAR is doing and that can't be right you know it's no surprise that observers of the uh, statue of, of Paul and Johnny share my doubts thanks to them and of course to David Moyes old school values 
still count for something, you know. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.